Happy Monday, friends. This is Cordelia on the We Healed Together podcast. Today, I have Dr. Lindsay C. Gibson, who is a clinical psychologist in private practice who specializes in individual psychotherapy with adult children of emotionally immature parents. She is the author of Who You Are Meant to Be, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, Recovering from Emotionally Immature Parents, and the just-released Self-Care for Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. She also writes a monthly column on well-being for Tidewater Family Magazine. In the past, she served as adjunct assistant professor of graduate psychology for the College of William and Mary, as well as for Old Dominion University. She lives and practices currently in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Her latest book is so good. I read it and it is, like I said, called Self-Care for Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. The link is in the show notes for that. It just came out a few days ago. I highly recommend it as well as her other books. If you have followed me on Instagram at all, I'm sure you've heard me rave about her other books and talk about her other books and her work. It's She's an incredible writer and she puts out so much good knowledge into the world. I highly encourage you to support her work. As always, check out the show notes. So if you want to know more about Dr. Gibson or if you want to check out her books, you want to check out our website, you want to check out her articles, I've linked that all in the show notes, so be sure to go in the show notes, check those things out, and support her. And as always, if you are new here, or if you've just forgotten, my name is Cordelia. If you want more of my content, if you're interested in checking some other stuff out, I have all that information in the show notes. My Instagram is at codependent recovery and I have all kinds of resources, free worksheets, all in the show notes as well. So check that out. New episodes come out on the podcast every other week. So after today's episode, the next episode is released on Monday, September 20th. Every other Monday, for those of you that would like to tune in. Without further ado, we have a few words from our sponsor, and then we will get right into the episode. Let's get healing, y'all. Today's episode is brought to you by two different sponsors. They are both doggy companies, so you know that I love them. (laughs) I will, for full disclosure and transparency, as I always want to disclose that kind of stuff to you, I will earn a commission if you end up clicking through the links for either of these sponsors and making a purchase. With that being said, I, prior to getting in Instagram and getting any kind of partnership with these sponsors as well as getting my podcast with my own money I I bought these products on my own out of my pocket and 
I can honestly say that I like these products a lot. I, I stand behind these products and that's the only reason that I'm comfortable partnering with them. So first sponsor is Iron Doggy. If you follow me on Instagram, that's who I, I always show like the leash in my Instagram that I use on my two dogs. So I love their hands-free leashes. You can use them for walking or running and they're awesome for taking your dogs around. Even if you just have one dog, they have that option, but they have awesome options for two dogs as well. I have linked in the show notes the leashes that I use for my dogs as well as provided a general link. And if you use the code HEAL10, you get an additional 10% off. The other sponsor for today's episode is Embark. Again, this is another company that I paid for out of pocket, did the dog DNA testing kits on my dogs. And I thought it was such a cool process and I was really excited for this opportunity now to partner with them. So the results came back. It took about, mine only took about two weeks, but they generally come back in two to four weeks. They test over 350 breeds of dogs. They're the most accurate dog DNA test on the market and they're the only canine DNA relative finder. They analyze over 200,000 genetic markers and I've put the links for those kits in the show notes. If you use the spring 50 code on the link that I provided to the breed and health kit, that will get you $50 off. I loved finding out my dog's breeds. I thought that was so cool. So I hope you enjoy those and check out the show notes. As mentioned, I will get a commission if you click on the affiliate link and purchase through there. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here and for chatting with me. And first and foremost, congratulations on the release of your new book. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. So I have Dr. Gibson here with me who has written so many incredible and essential books about emotionally immature parents you just to kind of give a brief background on top of the one that I've already given you are a clinical psychologist and just to clue in everybody the new book the new release that I was talking about just came out I think two days ago if I'm correct on that one (laughs) Um, Uh the latest edition of Uh, At this point, I guess we could call it a trilogy, but it is the self-care for adult children of emotionally immature parents. And I'm sure everyone who's followed my Instagram and podcast has heard me rave about your others, the adult children of emotionally immature parents, how to heal from distant, rejecting, or self-involved parents, and then recovering from emotionally immature parents, 
practical tools to establish boundaries and reclaim your emotional autonomy. So before we get into all the topics I want to talk about, first, I just want to back up for a second and ask, you are a clinical psychologist and an author. So how long have you been a clinical psychologist? Um, that's going to be over 35 years. Um, I got my master's degree first in clinical psychology and worked doing that for a few years and then went and got my doctorate after that. So it's, it's a little over 35 years now. That's amazing. And are you still practicing today? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. I've gone to halftime practicing and halftime writing but I still see clients every day. That's incredible. And do you specialize with any types of particular therapy or populations of people? And I guess, does anyone come to you for, you know, from reading your books? Yeah, it's interesting. I've always only worked with adults. I have training with children and adolescents, but my love was really working with adults and individual psychotherapy. So that's the population that I work with. And then when the books uh, came out, I really started specializing more with the adult children of emotionally immature parents. Um, And what's happened is that I've gotten uh, a lot of referrals from people who have read the books and wanna work with me on the topic of emotionally immature people, whether it's a parent or a spouse or um, other people in their lives, they just resonated with the books and want to talk more about it. So actually, I've done a combination now of psychotherapy and coaching. Um, So depending on what the person's needs are, we can go either the clinical route if you're having symptoms, or we can do the life goal route if you're just wanting to be your best self. That's, I love that. I love that you've, you've kind of got two different branches that you've done there. What is it that inspired you to write these incredible books? What drew you to that topic of adult children of emotionally immature parents? It's so specific. (laughs) Yeah, it is is specific. well, uh, back when I had my was working with my master's degree in psychology, I was trained as a psychological tester. And that means that I did literally thousands of psychological evaluations. And the way that I was trained was not only to look for personality characteristics and patterns of uh, functioning and that kind of thing, but I was encouraged to try to get at what developmental level was this person living at. So if I tested a 14 year old that a therapist had sent to me for an evaluation, um, they wanted to know, is he functioning as a 14 year old or is he more like a seven year old emotionally? Or is he like a five year old mentally? I mean, just evaluate all parts of the person. So I was accustomed from the very beginning to thinking about people's personalities in a developmental context. Um, 
So I could talk about uh, a person that came in who was very smart, but emotionally was functioning like a six-year-old. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and that uh, metaphor of, you know, the immature emotional development was something that was very, very helpful to a therapist um, when they're doing a treatment plan. So that's where that's where that started. But I, as I was working as a general practitioner in individual psychotherapy with people, I began to notice that people would describe their parents or describe their husband or wife. And I would be thinking, that person is really immature. I mean, right. they're describing behavior that belongs to a little kid. Um, you know, they're, <laughs> they're emotionally volatile, they're self-centered, you know. Right. And I'm why is this person in my office and the person who's really causing all the distress is running wild um, and is not coming anywhere near a therapist's office? And I also saw my clients making excuses for their behavior, feeling bad about themselves, being self-critical. When listening to them, I could tell that they were dealing with really difficult, emotionally immature people. So a big part of my focus in therapy became explaining that developmental delay to them and helping them to see that it wasn't them it was just how these people function. And then from that, you know, it all kind of came together in, in the um, uh, basis of the book where we looked at all the different ways these people were emotionally immature and helped the, the client of mine learn how to cope with that. Absolutely. And I, I'm glad that you went into detail and explained it because I do think it's such an interesting lens that a lot of psychology and psychiatry as well has kind of glossed over. As you were talking, I was just thinking, even the phrase maturity, you know, so many practitioners, particularly psychiatrists who are relying on the DSM, that that's not really a word that pops up and... DSM criteria. So I think it's really an interesting lens and perspective that you bring to the table and that your training kind of ingrained in you early on about assessing maturity, because I think a lot of us don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. And we don't even stop to think about our own maturity or other people's maturity. And so it is a really interesting thing that I think is currently just kind of not being touched on in a lot of realms in the psych world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, as I was mentioning, I've done a lot of posts and I've gotten a lot of feedback about your book where people have messaged me and said, oh, I saw that post you did. I got Dr. Gibson's book and it's so incredible. You must, if I am getting that feedback, I can't imagine how much feedback you get <laughs> from people on a daily basis. I'm curious how you feel, like, have you been surprised by the amount of people that identify with these books that you've written? Yeah, I, uh, I have two, two reactions to that. At one <laughs> level, I was shocked 
(laughs) (laughs) I mean, just just because I I had published a book um, uh, back in 2000 called Who You Were Meant to Be with a different publisher. And that book did fine. And I I think it sold about 3,000 copies. And uh, and then this book, uh, The Adult Children of Emotionally Mature Parents and its sequel, The Recovering from EI Parents, those books have sold um, probably over 300,000 at this point. Um, and so that was the shock part for me was right. the astronomical difference between in the sales between these two sets of books. <laughs> um, but, you know, at an emotional level, I was not surprised at all because I knew that I was talking about something that was so, so painful and so difficult to deal with in so many people's lives. And I knew that I had a way of describing it that I felt like people needed to hear because their suffering was not articulated with anything that we had in either clinical work or in the culture. So I really felt that it was going to connect if I could get it out to people. I was just surprised at how many people. (laughs) No, that's huge, 300,000, that's amazing. But I absolutely hear you. And, you know, when I think about books that I have read or I've seen, there are a lot of books out there, or not a lot, but there's there are books out there about kids who grew up with alcoholic parents or kids who grew up and endured physical abuse. And I know that there is overlap, of course, with emotional immaturity and those things. So I'm not saying these are all isolated, but I do think your books bring like words that a certain group of people maybe were looking for that there really wasn't literature specifically geared, you know, towards this group of people that we're looking for books, but they're like, well, my parents aren't, weren't necessarily in that category or this category. Yeah, I, th- I think that I'm glad you're bringing that up, Cordelia, because um, I think that some other books would use either clinical terms or slightly, slightly pejorative terms. Right. Um, and the fact is that we don't think of our parents, our loved ones in clinical diagnostic terms. So if I um, am, you know, thinking of of, uh, my mother and somebody has a book about narcissistic mothers, I just sort of think twice, like, "Mm, is she really? I don't know if she qualifies. Um, And then some of the other ones, um, I can't think of one right off the top of my head, but ones that are in the slightly pejorative uh, category then I feel kind of unfair, um, you know, if I pick that book up because, you know, is that really true about my parent? So um, the emotionally immature label was something that was descriptive, yeah, uh, but it wasn't in the clinical world. And it was sort of saying, this is a, a drawback that they have. Right. Not calling them bad people. 
um, we're trying to understand why they function the way they do. I, th I think that's such a valid and, and good use of the words because, I mean, as we'll kind of discuss more as the episode goes on, I, I think parents and digging into your childhood and thinking about the dynamics you had with your parents, that can bring up so many obstacles for a person. And like you said, sometimes something as little as a label not little, I shouldn't minimize it, but something like, oh, this book is about narcissistic parents or something like you said, that can be a game changer for like, all right, I'm done. I'm not ready to think about it like that. <laughs> so I appreciate I don't that. want my mother finding it in my room. <laughs> absolutely. So I absolutely loved the new release, your new book, and I loved reading it ahead of our chat today. And so for those who don't know anything about it, can you just tell me the name of the book? What's it about? And of course, just so everyone listening knows, I've linked it in the show notes. Absolutely would recommend it. Such a good read. I wasn't even shocked that it was a good read, of course, because it goes so perfectly with the other ones. But if you could just share with us whatever you would like about the book, I would love to hear it. Okay. Um, well, this one uh, that just came out, uh, like we said, a couple of days ago is called Self-Care for Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. Uh, the subtitle is Honoring Your Emotions, Nurture Yourself, and Live with Confidence. So this book is a collection of 76 pieces of writing that I have done over the past 20 years um, on the subject of, uh, generally speaking, psychological topics. I uh, wrote them for a magazine and uh, put them together, rearranged them so that they could uh, fit the adult children of emotionally immature parents. I also discovered that I had been writing for these people for 20 years because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I sort of uh, had to discover that because it was, it was a lot of the things that I talk about, like um, finding yourself, trusting yourself, taking care of yourself, um, protecting yourself from pushy and dominant people. A lot of topics that I had written about fit right into um, the subject. So the, it's, it's 76 um, written pieces that are very short. So this is ideal for uh, a couple of minutes when you sit down at the end of the day or right before you go to sleep, something where you don't really wanna do a deep dive into a self-help book, <laughs> <laughs> but you want a little something to you know uh, think about. And these pieces are broken into three sections. Uh, the first one is on uh, protecting and caring for yourself. That's emotional self-protection with uh, EI people or emotionally immature people. And then the second um, section is on dealing with people. And that includes difficult people. It includes people who are good for you includes dealing with children, parenting, um, and a number of other areas. 
And then the last section is on coping with challenges. Like how do you think about yourself in adversity? How do you, um, what sort of orientation do you get for yourself that helps you to deal with life more easily and with more confidence? So that's, that's a kind of an overview of the nature of the, of the book, but it's a different style from the other two, because in the other ones, it was a pretty straightforward exposition of either the phenomenon itself, the emotional immaturity, or the steps that you can take to cope with it, to deal with it. And this is more for kind of uh, connecting with yourself and giving yourself permission to put that energy into your own self-protection and into your own growth. Absolutely. And I, I really enjoyed, I have it, the, my copy here. I enjoyed the way that it was formatted and I loved how, I mean, even how you said it's a nice book to read, like winding down at the end of the day, the other, your first two books, I feel like I ha I was like sitting up and like highlighting and like had to, you know, I loved like absorbing the information, but it was definitely a different style. And I loved this one because I feel like as you progress through the series of the books, this is a nice kind of, okay, now I'm kind of taking it past like the educational part and I'm learning more about myself and more of the application to me, like how do I apply this in my daily life? So I loved that. And I did find it really nice to read just before bed. Like it had, it was, what's the word for it? It left me feeling like good after I read it and like, okay, I've bettered myself. And that was just a few pages to read, you know, a, a nice quick read before, <laughs> before moving on. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to, on this podcast, I thought it would be a great idea to go over some of the big concepts from, not necessarily from this book, but just from the series in general. And that way, no one feels obligated. To, like, if they want, they can just start on the third book. And so I think a really good idea for today is just kind of giving a big picture for people of what are the what is this phrase that we're talking about emotionally immature parents and giving them this big idea and then that way they don't have to sit with a highlighter like me I mean they're more than welcome to <laughs> and I think one of the big things first that I want to talk about we briefly talked about it at the beginning I really enjoyed in your latest release in the latest book where you talked about that relatable feeling that so many people have um, where we struggle with exploring childhood and feeling feeling guilty for blaming parents or feeling guilty for saying a negative thing about childhood. What could you say to somebody who's listening right now and feels like okay, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I definitely struggle with that. Yeah, it's it's the same thing that I say to nearly every one of my psychotherapy clients, which is 
we are not here to place blame or to um, you know denigrate your parents um, we are here to try to find out the truth of what's been going on with you so that you can feel better and you can live your life uh, with less distress less anxiety less depression you know whatever the problem is so we're not after trying to drag your parents down um, and also nobody but us is going to hear this we're not sending this to your parents we're not broadcasting it to your parents there is no way for your parents to ever know anything that you say in this office. And I say that to people who are readers as well, that there, there is no, the people who grew up with emotionally immature parents feel so vulnerable to their parents' intrusions they don't feel like they have safe boundaries against their parents. And they don't think it's okay to think whatever they wanna think or feel whatever they wanna feel because emotionally mature parents are so judgmental and rigid about what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad. So they expect to be judged for most of their thoughts and certainly all of their feelings. So what I am trying to do with people is to help them, you know, when they express guilt like that, is to help them kind of wonder at the fact that they're sitting in, an, in a private office with a confidentiality bound psychotherapist <laughs> and they didn't want to say anything bad about their parents. And to me, that's bordering into brainwashing right. um, because they're feeling like they're doing something wrong by having a free thought about their parent that might be critical or might express anger or disappointment, you know, something that the parent wouldn't like. So they've got that inner EI parent watching out for whatever it is that they're going to say, and it creates an, in, an inhibition. Um, so what I tell them is, um, we are not about tearing your parents down. Let's get that straight. But I want you to notice how concerned you are about saying anything negative about them. And then I would ask, uh, what is it that you feel when you're about to say something that, that you think I might think is critical? And then they might say, well, I feel guilty. You know, they paid for my college. They took care of me when I was sick. I always had a roof over my head. Um, my mother bought me new clothes for school. You know, they will go through the whole list of why they don't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> <laughs> and then I will say, all, all true. We're not we're not saying anything um, bad about those things. But you also had emotional needs, and you also had um, relationship needs that maybe they weren't able to meet because of their own limitations. And if we can understand that, you know, then maybe we can understand some of these patterns that are bringing you the anxiety now, for instance. Yeah, so in trying to yeah. um, help them to see that, you know, uh, look at how interesting it is that you can't freely criticize your 
parent in absolute privacy. Right. <laughs> and then <laughs> secondly, we're we're not criticizing them to drag them down. We're doing it because we're trying to understand you. Absolutely. I I think that's huge. I love how you broke that down and explained it and I think so many people can relate to that. There's particularly if somebody's feeling what you were describing while reading your book, I imagine that's really similar to what you said about someone who's there with you in therapy in private and feeling those guilty thoughts. If somebody's reading your book in private and feeling guilty, those same questions that you just posed are great, great to explore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what is, how would you define an emotionally immature parent? Well, think of it like, uh, think of it on a continuum, first of all, because there's some people who are extremely emotionally immature um, and their behavior is really quite um, out of control. And then you have other people who are still, you know, appear to be emotionally mature, but they have high points of functioning and they, they can relate more, uh, more frequently than other types. And so it is, there is a continuum, but there are two things that really kind of set the emotionally immature apart from people who have um, kind of grown up to an adequate level. And that is empathy and self-reflection. Like the emotionally mature person is, you know, they could be like a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old. By the time you're seven, you have more self-awareness. So that's where emotional maturity really starts to take off. But six and below is where you really see the kind of emotional immaturity that I'm talking about in the books. The, uh, the egocentrism is enormous. They're very self-preoccupied. They're always checking themselves. How do I feel about that? What's that doing to me? What do I think about that? What's my opinion on that? So they're very self-preoccupied. And that makes it so that they really can't imaginatively put themselves in other people's shoes. First of all, it doesn't occur to them to do that, just like it doesn't occur to the six-year-old to do that until they get in trouble for bopping their playmate on the head. You know? <laughs> but they lack that imaginative empathy for other people. And then the second uh, characteristic is lacking self-reflection. So self-reflection is what allows us to change and allows us to grow uh, at an emotional level. So if I can say to myself, uh, gee, um, my husband uh, tells me that I fly off the handle and he can't stand to be around it anymore. Gee, I wonder what's making me do that. I didn't used to fly off the handle all the time. I wonder what this is about. Hmm, Maybe I'll go see a therapist and see if I can figure this out to save my marriage, for instance. Right. So that would be me reflecting on my own behavior saying, yeah, there's appears to be a problem. I've got an angry husband who doesn't want to be with me anymore. 
And I don't know why this is, but the emotionally immature person does not reflect on their behavior. They instead would say, you know, well, look at what he did. Uh, you know, he's no great shakes either. Uh, I think he's really, uh, you know, he's, he's had in left field somewhere because I don't do that. I just, I wasn't really that angry. He's making a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, and in fact, let me tell you what he's doing. I don't need to change. He needs to change. I've been telling him that for the last three years. And he's not listening to it. No wonder I blow up all the time. It's his fault. Okay. Right. <laughs> different, different mindset. <laughs> so those are the, those are the two hallmarks. If you have trouble in those two areas, then the emotional immaturity is bound to be there. Um, there are other characteristics of them, uh, but those are the two that I would really look for. That's really helpful to, to narrow it down to two things. I think just in general, I guess off the top of your head, so if somebody is with a parent or it's a, you know, sitting after this podcast and thinking, well, are my parents emotionally immature? What are some kind of characteristics or things outside of, you know, the two things that we just discussed? And these could be like traits or things that they do. Just some, for lack of a better word, red flags <laughs> that people could be on the lookout for, for you know, if they consider all these things that their parents do, just things that tend to be more emotionally immature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, a big one is the rigidity that you see in their personality. Uh, these are not live and let live people. <laughs> they tend to be very black and white um all or nothing uh really very little regard for anybody else's opinion low respect for other people's opinions they tend to oversimplify things um they because they love a sense of certainty and so they will make these pronouncements um they will act like uh, they have a corner on the truth and they really aren't interested in what other people think and they'll get into this kind of stubborn mindset where you know they're going to die on that hill because, <laughs> you know, because they get locked in on what they think is right and lots of times they'll get like uh this moral overtone to it which is very very hard on their children because if they think that you're doing something that they don't agree with or that they don't like it isn't like Hey, honey, don't do that. I don't like that. It's like you bad boy. Why? Why did you do that? You know, right? Uh, you're selfish. Um, you're mean. They they start. They really go for the uh, that all or nothing pronouncement, and that's very damaging to children's uh, feelings. They also um, do this really interesting thing where reality is what they say it is mm -hmm. uh an example of that <clears throat> is they will think that reality is what they feel so if i feel like I mean, a classic example is if i feel 
that someone is out to get me. Someone's out to get me. That's <laughs> reality follows the feeling. Whereas people who are more intact might say, I feel like people are, uh, you know, following me or, but I don't know if that's true or not because they're used, they, they have gotten some evidence and they are looking at uh, the evidence, but they're not basing their view of reality on a feeling, but emotionally mature people like little children uh, think that that's the reality. And they deny, dismiss and distort reality according to what it feels like to them. So you try to argue with them that reality is something else. It's really, really hard to get any traction with that because they just, they're a moving target. They just go on to the next thing they're certain about. Um, the uh, other thing that they do with their emotions, which are often very um, volatile, not all of them, but a lot of times uh, they are, is that their feelings and their needs are emergencies. So you should drop everything that you're doing and devote 100% of your time and resources to helping them out when they have a crisis. And lots of times this will, you know, be uh, in the early hours of the morning or when you're already uh, at work or something like that, because when something is an emergency or a crisis for them, if you love them, you would jump to make it all better for them and fix it right away. So right. they have like really low stress tolerance. Um, they want everything fixed yesterday. And <laughs> <laughs> they get mad at you if you're not moving fast enough. So if you're a little kid who by your very nature isn't doing things very well or very fast because you're a little clumsy kid, this really puts a tremendous load of stress on that child to always feel like they have to hurry, to feel like they have to um, you know, know more than they really do, um, fix things or solve things when they have no idea what to do because that parent needs to have it fixed so that they can calm down. Um, another hallmark of emotional immaturity is a fear of emotional intimacy. And what I mean by that is that people who are emotionally mature really enjoy sharing their inner world with other people. Um, they talk about their feelings. I don't mean all the time, but they share what they feel. Uh, they share what they really think. They allow themselves to be known by other people and they like it. They like that level of, of conversation where we're really telling each other what's going on with each other. But for the emotionally immature person, they are practically phobic about that kind of emotional openness and intimacy. They get very, very uptight and nervous about that. And they can come back and be very defensive to kind of keep you at a distance. 
So when you're a little kid and you're looking for that emotional connection with your parent, that can really be very hurtful um, because it feels like you're trying to connect and that the parent is pulling back from you. And of course the child concludes that there must be something wrong with me if my mother or my father um, isn't interested in hearing about my feelings or talking with me at that level. Um, the other thing, I'll just mention a couple more. One is that there's all, a lot of times a lot of conflict because for them, conflict is much more comfortable than emotional intimacy. So, you know, in relationships, they'll start fights. Um, they'll get into an adversarial stance, they'll get defensive. All of that, unpleasant though it is, all of that is more comfortable for them than being in that vulnerable, kind of soft, emotionally open place. So they, um, they will often, you know, stir up conflict. And then they, they relate to other people through emotional coercion. And they do this by making you feel one of four things like guilt that we talked about earlier, shame, fear, and self-doubt. So if I can get you to feel those things, you now are off balance. Uh, you are not a threat to me anymore because you're fighting yourself and I can control you. And once I can control you and be dominant with you, I feel safe. Because a lot of these parents have histories of trauma or emotional abandonment. They have very difficult histories, um, <clears throat> illnesses in childhood that you know separated them from their parents. And so they just feel better uh, if they can do something that kind of keeps them from anybody seeing their soft underside. Absolutely. I so appreciate you going through all those. And I think it's in the first book where you have like the checklist of some common characteristics that an emotionally immature parent might have. And I remember, you know, some of the things we discussed and that you laid out for us on the checklist and then I remember a few, and when you were talking about the four ways that somebody or a parent could use emotional coercion, they were kind of just popping in my head about like how a parent will shame or guilt you or, or do one of those things. I remember on the checklist, there was something, there were some items about how when you were growing up, everything kind of centered around their interests mm -hmm. and your individual differences, like they made you feel bad about them. And I remember reading the checklist and thinking that was really well like written and included in there. And it's really a good example of how like shame and guilt can be really sneaky because when you're a kid, you start feeling like, you know, that common term, like the black sheep or the oddball. If you've got somebody telling you all the time, like, 
well, you don't like this thing. Everybody likes it. I like it, you know, and that's just a very subtle way that when you're a kid and that's who you look up to and that's who you're around all the time, that can really start to to make you feel those things that you're talking about, guilt and shame. So I wanted to mention because I, I really enjoyed your inclusion of those on the checklist. <laughs> Yeah, and I wanted to mention um, one other thing to Cordelia that is um, really central, and that is that the emotionally immature person, because they're like a little kid inside, they need other people to emotionally stabilize them and to regulate their self-esteem. That's what little kids need people for, okay? The little kid can't manage his emotions very well. And so he has a meltdown or he has a tantrum or he yells or something. And he needs the adults in his life to help him learn how to calm himself down and how to regulate that emotion. It's the same thing for emotionally immature adults. They force other people into having to calm them down. Okay. Um, and they also can't manage their self-esteem without other people, you know, sort of puffing them up or building them up, um, agreeing with them, uh, mirroring them, being like them so that they feel okay about themselves. So that characteristic um, that they have what they do is they get other people to be as upset as they are. It's just like with babies. So right. if a baby is hungry or wet or whatever, the baby will cry and create so much distress in its parents that the parents will do anything to make that baby feel better, right? Right. <laughs> it's the same principle with emotionally uh, immature adults. They, right. they do the equivalent of crying and screaming until somebody <laughs> does what they want or gratifies them or calms them down. And it's, it's very much the same process. And I did want to mention too, before we leave the subject of yeah. their characteristics, um, that you can have these different strands of development in somebody so that they may be quite emotionally immature in the realm of you know, relationships, emotional control, um, sense of self, these things that we've been talking about. But their intellectual development, that strand of development, that may have proceeded just fine. So you could have an intellectually brilliant person that was emotionally immature, okay? And, right. and they, there would be no, um, there would be no felt contradiction with that. Just like you could right. have um, somebody who is very socially skilled and charismatic, uh, incredible uh, social skills, very highly developed, and yet they could be emotionally immature. And you wouldn't notice that until you were in an intimate relationship with them. And then you sort of see the dark side. But when they're out there in the world, it may look like they're they're really you know exceptionally high functioning people i think that's such a a good point and a good segue to talking about the four types of emotionally immature parents 
that you lay out. And of course, as you mentioned, continuum, you know, mm-hmm. you're, we're not saying somebody has to fit all these things, but I think since you're mentioning when you were just describing that, it was making me think of the driven type. When I was reading um, the book, I remember thinking, oh, I know a ton of people like that, (laughs) you know, who on the outside looking in, you would think, oh, they're so successful and so amazing. And underneath the layers, you know, there's more immaturity going on. So I, I would love for you just to break down those four different types for us. Yeah, I, th- I think just on that, uh, to continue on that um, idea for just a second. Yeah. I think there was a, um, an old movie, I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was about a, um, a mentally impaired or um, disabled man who is fighting for the right to raise his child. Well, Forrest Gump is another fictional example, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but they are emotionally, Forrest Gump is a great example of an emotionally mature person who is intellectually disabled. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's a great example. Yeah. And, and that's what that movie ends up with is, is how able he is to connect with that little boy. And everybody is thinking, oh my gosh, thank goodness that that little boy has Forrest as his father because right. he's going to get everything he needs in terms of attention and emotional connection so (laughs) no that's a great point i mean it is it's again i think this touches on how society in general we've kind of not talked a lot or thought about maturity and so a lot of times i think we associate somebody's maturity with quote-unquote like how adult (laughs) they seem (laughs) Yeah, and, and how well they're able to make a living and how far they yeah. went. I mean, our culture is way skewed toward the left brain kind of, and I yeah. lose, use that term loosely um, for all <laughs> neuropsychologists out there that are trying to get that. But, uh, but, you know, we, we worship the word brain, the verbal, logical uh, brain that, that does the education and all that. And that's not what's important when it comes to raising children and making connections with people. Absolutely. I, that's such a good point. And that, I, that's why I love your work so much, because I think it is this huge area that not only in parents, but just in people in general that we're not really thinking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the four types that you lay out, they are emotional, driven, passive, and rejecting. And you don't have to, you know, of course, people w- would need to read the book to get like the full in-depth, but how would you kind of break these down just briefly, like for each category? Yeah, okay. So um, the emotional um, type of parent is is the most instantly recognizable one as emotionally immature because they're acting like children um, at times. <laughs> uh, you know, poor emotional control, volatile, uh, get hysterical over nothing, um, extremely reactive, pouting, 
um, uh, refusing to uh, go along with things when they don't, you know, when they're not the center of attention, uh, getting other people to do what they want them to do or making them feel guilty or emotionally abandoned if they don't get it. They really like, you know, sort of like these three-year-olds in adult bodies. And that can get very extreme um, all the way into the clinical realm where you end up with people with personality disorders that are, you know, have really severe difficulties with their emotional control and their psychological integrity. So that's the, that's the emotional parent. Um, and they're scary. Um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, somebody that goes off on you in a rage is, uh, alarming and absolutely, absolutely can be terrifying to a child. And you also learn to kind of walk on eggshells with those people because they're always getting emotionally destabilized. So the child is often pulled into comforting the parent, making sure that they don't upset the parent, um, you know, being very, very careful about uh, other people not upsetting the parent. Yeah, they're just, they're just always ready to go off and it's extremely tiring to be around them. And then the, yeah, and then the, the, uh, other type that we just were talking about, the driven type. Right. They're the ones that nobody suspects of being emotionally immature because they fit the culture like a glove. Um, they're very perfectionistic. Um, they um, are very achievement oriented. And so they succeed in the culture because our culture rewards high attention to detail, ability to plan, uh, ability to achieve, get different degrees, climb the ladder. Those things are all reinforced as signs of um, not only health, but but superior functioning, right? Right. <laughs> um, and so people don't think about those people as being emotionally immature because they're like the ideal American adult. Um, but what you find with them is that they stay extremely busy. Um, they can be working on multiple projects, uh, community involvement, church involvement, um, working, raising their kids, doing volunteer work. And so everyone is thinking like, well, this is a, this is a super functioner, you know, this is right nothing immature about this person. This person is like doing adult life on steroids. <laughs> but when it comes to that ability to stop long enough to accept and have empathy for a child, that kind of warm, unconditional love, that ability to be present, you know, just you and me in this moment, that is something that's very alien to them. They are constantly rushing past that to get the next thing done. Or they are constantly pressuring their child uh, to do well or move on to the next achievement. 
So that's that's the urban period. Did did you have any other thoughts about that one, Cordelia? Because we had no. I, I love how you laid that out. I think that's you know I think that's a great. For some reason, I feel like a lot of people will identify with that one, particularly people who haven't really stopped to to think like, oh, maybe my parent is a little bit emotionally immature because even when we started the episode and you were saying some of the thoughts some of your therapy clients have had in saying all the things that their parent has done for them, it just makes me think that a lot of people probably have parents that are driven that do meet their their needs like your example was they paid for college or they always had a roof over my head or bought me clothes things like that the driven parent is to the exterior world they're thriving they're you know they're making ends meet they're making money they're able to to do all these quote-unquote nice things for their kids so I, I think a lot of listeners will identify with that <laughs> yeah and, and the the sort of the giveaway um on that emotional immaturity is how the child feels at an emotional level like you can have a child who uh develops say an eating disorder a classic sort of perfectionistic uh, goal-oriented rigidity, and the parent, um, you know, may not notice that at first because, um, you know, they're so proud of their child being so controlled or losing the weight or whatever, and the child ends up feeling very emotionally lonely and very uh very scared to um show their feelings and they also feel like their parent has always got their eye on something else like they're always about to rush off to something else so there's no resting spot with a driven parent where you can just be and you know that you can take your time to express your feelings or talk over your problems with them they're, they're really, you know, kind of psychologically, they're like jackrabbits. They're, um, they're managing their own anxiety and stress by constantly being in motion. Absolutely. I feel like these are also the kind of parents that simultaneously guilt you for not opening up to them. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Like, yes. I don't get why you won't ever tell me these things and you're just, thinking well <laughs> when I tell you it's not very satisfying I don't feel like it lands <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I guess the parent comes back in and it has a better idea for what you could do about that or you know yeah. wants to make a plan for improving it or tells you what you should have said or you, you know they're <laughs> goal oriented they can't stop <laughs> that's so true I, I know and for whatever reason I've just noticed Obviously, I'm not a therapist, but I've noticed the people who tend to be more emotionally immature throughout my life are typically the ones who guilt me with that phrase of like, you never tell me anything or you won't open up to me. And, you know, they don't stop to think like, I wonder what I've done to make this person not want to open up. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, whereas for somebody else, that might be the first question you'd think of. Like, oh, right. what I do. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so let's go on to the yeah. like the um, uh, the rejecting parent. So the rejecting parent is is just what we might loosely call uh, the stern or mean parent. I mean, they just really don't want to be bothered uh, by other people. Uh, they want you to meet their needs and leave them alone. Uh, and with children, that's kind of a that that's a that really hurts their little hearts because they want to connect with their parent, whether it's the mother or the father. And they get the message that this person really does not want to spend time with them. Okay. Um, I had one client who described it as uh, she felt like she was throwing herself against a locked door and with her father. And that's a really right. good emotional description of it. Yeah, that's a great visual. <laughs> yeah. And at the far end, you know, of course, these parents can be abusive right. um, because they want to be uh, left alone. They don't want to be bothered. Um, they're extremely egocentric, but they, they also have that aggressive edge to them. That's why they're, you know, they're rejecting, they're actively right. pushing you away. Um, and then the passive parent, um, this one is the, the favorite. This is the one that the child loves um, because they tend to be the good parent. They tend to um, be good with children. They might uh, talk to the child after the other parent has upset the child. <laughs> they may come in and try to comfort the child. They may be very playful. Uh, they may be the fun parent. Um, but the problem is that they really aren't there to protect the child. And they really aren't there consistently to make sure that the child has an emotional connection that they can totally depend on. Right. So this might be like the mother who, uh, you know, is there for her children. She's very sweet. She does everything for them but she lets the husband uh, punish them very severely. Right. And just says, well, you know, that's daddy being daddy. You know, they, right. uh, they passively allow a lot of stuff to happen that shouldn't. Um, conversely, you can have a, a father who is really the more maternal parent in that he's, he's sweet, he's uh, affectionate, He's fun, but then you might have the mother who is rejecting right. and will make excuses for her and make sure that the kids don't upset her because his alliance is with that mother and it's not in his role toward um, his children as their father. So those yeah. can often be very confusing because lots of times people will say, well, I know that my mother was, you know, like the emotional type. So I know she was emotionally mature, but my dad was right. such a great guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> How could he be emotionally mature? But people of the similar uh, emotional maturity tend to gravitate toward each other. Right. Uh, 
So it's very common that you can have um, uh, a married pair that are both uh, at about the same level in terms of maturity. That totally makes sense. And I think what you said, I mean, again, I, I feel like I can think of so many <laughs> people who fit that category. I'm sure so many people relate to that. The passive parent, it sounds like they kind of turn the blind eye and they're there for the good times, but they're not there. I liked how you phrased the word alliance, like my alliance is with the parent. And I think that's such a good visual and picture of the, with emotionally immature parents, like they really can be allies essentially. And then the kids just kind of feel like it's them versus, (laughs) you know, there's a divide. Because one parent might be more actively, um, hurting them emotionally, but then the other parent might not validate that experience and might make excuses for the parent that's doing the, um, you know, the hurt. And that can make the child, you know, go into the self-doubt and, uh, you know, feel very bad about themselves because nobody is validating what they're going through. That's so true. And I think, like you said, that often can make excuses for that parent and even when they kind of admit that the other parent has crossed the line it's always in like a private moment so I think a lot of times kids just need you know even if I mean everybody's human people even not emotionally mature parents are gonna be immature sometimes and mess up and I think kids need a parent to tell the other parent like stand up for them you know and say hey you're taking it too far Mm -hmm. we're not gonna do this like she's fine we can go talk about this but I think just having somebody that you do actually feel like an ally with as a child is so important it is, and you know, there there's so many um, uh, things in some child rearing schools of thought that talk about you know the united front of the parents, but oh my gosh, you know when you've got a parent who is actively psychologically harmful to their child, it, yeah, you do not want to have a united front. Um, yes, a lot of uh, <laughs> incidents because it's it becomes the one one parent being supported by the the uh, other and then the child is you know not validated at all and feels completely emotionally lonely as a result of that united front absolutely i think that's so true and i i do think that was really popular when i was so i'm 31 when i was growing up i feel like that was like a big there was, I don't know, I remember hearing that so much when I was growing up, like, we want to be a united front, and I mean, not just in my own household, I feel like I heard it kind of throughout society, yeah. and I've always thought that was so strange, like, <laughs> kids don't really, kids don't grasp that, like, 
I don't, again, not a psychologist, but just my thoughts. Like when you're older and you're growing up as a kid, you're not looking back like, oh, that's so nice. Mom and dad always agreed on stuff. Like nobody actually cares about that. I think it's much more valuable for a kid to be like, oh, that was really nice that that one day when dad was yelling at me, mom told him to stop. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, when I, uh, work with people who are married to uh, an emotionally immature mate and they are like, how do I deal with my children? You know, when this person is behaving immaturely. And so we just talk about how you can talk about the behavior, validate the child's feelings. Right. a um a witness for that child in terms of um processing what it felt like to them and you can talk about whether or not that behavior was something that um should have happened whatever but you know you don't have to malign the other parent or diagnose the other parent to the child or take sides but it's so important to recognize that to not make that child feel crazy yeah absolutely (laughs) yes because i i think that's so true there's only so many times you can invalidate a child before they don't trust their own feelings you know they don't trust trust their own experiences (laughs) i think that's such a key key thing and i i think a lot of people who are listening at this point, they might be thinking, okay, so I'm an adult at this point. I know at least one of my, or I'm thinking at least one of my parents or caregivers, they were emotionally immature. What can adults do to improve that relationship? You mean with, with their parents? With their like adult parents. Sorry, I phrased, <laughs> I phrased that backwards. But yes, I'm thinking about like adult listeners that are thinking, okay, checking all these boxes, I'm pretty sure my parent falls into this category, but my childhood was so long ago. Like, what do I, where do I go from here? How do I, you know, look, thinking more about like that relationship with the parent, I guess. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I really stress is that if you try to go for, an improved relationship with emotionally mature parents, you are probably riding for a fall because <laughs> remember that they're leery of emotional intimacy. Yeah. And so if you want to have an improved relationship with them, you're probably going to go to them and talk about your feelings or right. you ask them about their feelings. And that's going to terrify them. (laughs) And they're much more likely to become defensive than to open up to you. Now, that's not true in every case. And I I don't want to discourage people from attempting to connect with their parents like that. But I'm just saying, if it doesn't go well, this is why. (laughs) Because people in, in the generation after the uh, that are the children of the emotionally mature people they often are much more emotionally accessible and emotionally fluent than that parent and i don't know if it's right. the school or the culture or 
television or you know media whatever right. it might be but but they kind of they kind of understand this thing about opening up to people and talking about your real feelings but the parent may find that uh frightening and threatening and not be able to do that so what i tell people is of course try to improve the relationship but hey i bet you've already done that yeah <laughs> um, you've tried many times to get this person to listen to you or see your point of view or talk to you about a problem or listen to you about something from childhood. I, I bet you've done that. Right. If you haven't, go ahead and try it. But if you've tried it and it hasn't worked very well, here's why. You don't want to try for a improved relationship. You want to try for a successful interaction. Okay. So, right. I may want to uh, go home for a visit and not get into a uh, state of um, anxiety, self-doubt, <laughs> depression, <laughs> whatever. Right. That may be my goal, all right? So I wanna have a successful interaction with them where that's the outcome that I want. I wanna leave there feeling good about myself, Maybe I have set a limit about something. Maybe I have told them something I had intended to let them know about, like maybe I'm not coming home for Thanksgiving or whatever. Right. Um, but I want to have a successful interaction where I achieve an outcome that I have set in advance. Now, it right. may be my outcome is I want to tell you what the effect was on me of the divorce. That could be a legitimate right. Okay. Um, I want to tell you I'm not coming home for Thanksgiving. I want to tell you I, I don't like how you talk to my children and I don't want you to do that anymore. These right. are outcomes that you would set. And the successful interaction is that you stay in touch with yourself and you tell them what you want to tell them. And there's some sort of acknowledgement that we have talked about this. Right. And then you get to pat yourself on the back because you've had a successful interaction. Right. But if you go into it thinking, I'm going to tell dad how I really feel and he's going to hear me and we're <laughs> going to have a deep conversation and we're going to be close after all these years, then you may be heading for disappointment for you and frustration and bafflement for him because right. this isn't something that he can really do. <laughs> but again, I really do encourage people to try it the other way. Right. Um, but you have to keep in mind that you want to be able to do what's possible. And it's not possible to change other people. That's so true. I can change myself if I work at it. And that's where you want to keep your focus. So when people are working with these parents, I always ask them to stay in touch with what it is that they want, because you get around these people and suddenly you disconnect <laughs> yourself. You forget what you're even thinking about. Um, right. you forget what you want. You forget what you were there for, because it's so easy to get confused around emotionally immature people. 
Yeah, and so it's really important that uh, people keep in mind that they can try to do um, things to, you know, improve the the interactions, but not hold up this goal that there's going to be closeness and and that kind of um, connection that maybe you might have with your best friend because right. they may be able to do it. That's such, I mean, it's such a good point. It reminds me of, I know I read this in another similar book to yours. I think the author was Claudia Black, I'm pretty sure. And she said she was talking in the context of siblings and how a lot of people who do reflection work and thinking about their childhood, then in the middle of that, they feel the urge to like go and confide with a sibling or go and confide with your parent and be like oh my gosh this is all the stuff that I just unpacked and figured out and like not be excited but kind of be excited like to share these big revelations you're making and I remember that passage kind of stuck with me and I I always think about it and it's so true because I've totally felt that where you know and I'm thinking a lot of people who've read your books likely have that personality too like if you're taking the time to kind of reflect and figure out all these issues if you're talking if you're coming from an emotionally immature family they're probably (laughs) they probably don't share that trait but just because you've been doing all this work and thinking that doesn't mean the other people have (laughs) and I think we forget that sometimes because we spend so much time thinking about an issue and then like you said you you get this idea in your mind of oh i'm going to talk to parent caregiver whoever and they're going to hear me and we're going to have this magical conversation (laughs) yeah you know um projection is a is a, a thing that cuts both ways because you can project your undesirable characteristics onto another person. Yeah. You, know, you can see them as having your flaws. Um, Sorry. But at the same time, you can project your health and your capacity for connection onto a person who doesn't have it. Ooh, and then so you true. can believe that, of course, you know, they're going to respond. Um, of course, they, they want the best for me and the best for this relationship because that's what I feel and so right. you know it's it's sometimes a painful lesson to see how really different they are but um to go back to what we we're talking about uh before they really do um disconnect you from yourself so the, the yeah. like the number one thing that people need to remember is that you have to stay in touch with yourself mm. when you're in the presence of the emotionally mature person and so I encourage people to do whatever it takes to remember yourself. And lots of times that means that you're not going to spend long periods of time <clears throat> with the emotionally mature person. And you might have to take frequent breaks because mm. it kind of gets like this, this hypnotic 
<laughs> aura around them where you end up sort of zoning out um, right. and you just you're not thinking very sharp you're you feel lethargic but hyper alert it's a very weird kind of uh, state that you can get in around them because you have to be very vigilant but at the same time it's so boring because they're really not talking about stuff that has emotional meaningfulness and so you kind of zone out and go into this trance mode and then you lose <laughs> touch with yourself yes that's so, so true yeah, so making sure that you have your own space and making sure that you have enough time to yourself when you're visiting or spending time with them is, is super important. That's such a good point. And I think I think the last question or the last topic I want to discuss is I know that there's so many people out there that likely have tried you know, connecting with their parents and they're probably just feeling like, okay, well, I've tried all this and I know my parent is emotionally immature and I don't think that a relationship's possible. I really liked in your latest book, you talked about forgiveness and I liked that it wasn't like a necessary, you know, so often in society we are ingrained to believe that we have to forgive everybody and oh they're family so we have to be family with them and I would love it if you could just expand on that concept a little bit and what would you say to somebody that genuinely feels like guilty about I don't really want my parent in my life anymore yeah well um the, the person who feels that way has the absolute right to who they associate with. Um, in the back of the um, second book, the recovering book, there is a bill of rights. And one of, the, one of the rights that we all have is who we associate with, okay? Thank goodness in our... <laughs> Society. We have the right to draw boundaries, to be with the people we like to be with, and to stay away from the people we don't. And just because it's a family member doesn't mean that you have to spend time with them or you have to like to be around them. That's, that's a radical uh, concept that people are, you know, expecting a lightning bolt to hit them if they think that. <laughs> But it's, it's really, it's really true. And sometimes for your mental or even physical health, I, I've had, uh, you know, people with parents who are so difficult, so uh, maddeningly egocentric, that, that the person I'm working with is actually being made sick by them. Right. You know, they've got stomach problems or they can't get rid of the migraine headache or, you know, um, and I'm like, uh, did you see your mom's <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, so it's extremely important um, that the person knows that they have the right to suspend interaction with that parent. I think it's easier for everybody to call it a suspension, like take a break, right. take a break, or we're going to do a little uh, time out for a while because right. 
you don't know. I mean, you, you, you know, two years from now, you might want to see your parent again. You might want, you might be ready to try again. Right. So you can leave the door open in that sense, as opposed to saying, I'm never, you know, coming home again. I'm never going to see you again. But we also have to realize that there are some people who have been so badly hurt. And I mean, physically and emotionally, that they really do not want to have any contact with that parent for the rest of their right and they have got to have the support and the permission you know let's say that in quotes to do that because one person does not have the right to see another person who doesn't want to see them and that person's rights are more important than the others. It's just not true. That's such a good point. Yeah. So with forgiveness, um, people get into, uh, and I'm not even gonna go into the religious part of this, but (laughs) I I think that's where it really got a a foothold originally was that to be a good person, you forgave people that had hurt you. And that's fine. Um, But, when it's turned into a thing where you're supposed to be able to forgive somebody who um, has done something hurtful to you, I think that it ends up making the person who was hurt feel invalidated, crazy, um, unsure of themselves right? because of that uh, pressure to do something that they can't do. Because with forgiveness, you're supposed to have a change of feeling toward the person. Right. Yeah. And actually, forgiveness is a natural thing that can happen when the other person recognizes what they've done, they're sorry for it, they're contrite, they've examined them their own behavior and seen that um, you know they really messed up, Right. If they ask you for forgiveness and they really have processed it, you are likely to maybe feel like forgiving them. Right. But when people do stuff and then deny that they did it or (laughs) dismiss your feelings as illegitimate and that they really haven't done anything wrong, I don't know how you have a feeling of forgiveness for people who are continuing to insist that they didn't do anything wrong. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think the the better solution is, instead of focusing on can I forgive them, is to continue developing yourself, to continue moving forward in your own life, to use that person as kind of a measure of, in some ways, what you don't want to be Right. That I live forward in a different way because of how badly you treated me. I don't treat other people like that. And I value my relationships because I know what it's like to not be valued by you. That is getting the good out of the bad experience for your own growth. (laughs) But the forgiveness, you know, over time, it visits you. It comes to you. You don't really have an emotional choice about that. Right. 
And I think we have to be compassionate with ourselves and recognize that we can't make that happen. We can aspire to that, right. but not feel bad when we can't do it. That's, I think that's spot on. And like you said, if, if somebody is essentially gaslighting you and not showing any remorse, there's really nothing to forgive. It's more about turning inward at that point. But I, I think you're right. And I think a, a lot of times I think people say forgiveness and it's not really like the concept that they mean. <laughs> it's like they mean moving on, but there's really nothing to forgive in those kind of situations where the other person is staring you in the face and saying, well, I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And um, and so when somebody is um, not accepting any responsibility for it, the yeah. idea is that if you forgive them, then you have released yourself from your resentment and your anger toward them. That's supposed right. to be the selling point of forgiveness, right? Right. But why not work on the resentment and the anger and forget about the forgiveness? I mean, right. That would be much more to the point. Exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. when people, but when people put the cart before the horse and instead of dealing with their anger and resentment toward what the person did, they try to forgive them, then they're... Right not working with the feelings that they actually need to be processing so it's uh, yeah, yeah. I'm no. not, not the biggest person on the forgiveness thing <laughs> i love that i think that's perfect and again i encourage everybody to get your new book and also the other books that you've written as well i so appreciate you being on the show today it means the world to me and it's such an honor to get to talk with you Oh, thank you, Cordelia. This has been a wonderful interview. I appreciate you having me so much. 